Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we confess, just as we have just sung, nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. Heavenly Father, that is bad news for us. For there is nothing good in us. For we are all sinners and we know that our sin condemns us. For the wages of sin is death. But God so loved the world. We do not cling to anything good in ourselves. We do not cling to any merits of ourselves. It is in Christ alone and his finished work in which we find hope. It is in Christ alone in which we boldly come before you this morning. It is in Christ alone that we have hope. And Heavenly Father, we pray that in Christ, through your Spirit, in us, that you will work this morning through the Word of God for your glory. That you would guide my thoughts and my words. That you would give me boldness to proclaim your truth. That you would take away distractions and accomplish your purpose through your word here this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The year 2012 was a pretty big year for Krista and I. In 2012, I graduated from Bob Jones. In 2012, Krista and I were married. And then later, in October of 2012, my mom was diagnosed with stage 4 thyroid cancer. Now, at the time, my parents didn't necessarily fill us in on all the details. My siblings and I, we were not quite aware of how serious my mother's situation was. I think part of that was my parents just trying to uh, protect us, trying to keep us from worrying. Uh, Chris and I had just been married. We were a young married couple. My sister was working hard on getting her interior design degree. My brother was, I think, a junior or senior in high school getting ready for what was next. And, And my parents didn't want to burden us down, so they didn't fill us in with all the details. I just knew that my mom had cancer. I didn't even at the time, I don't think, understand that it was stage four. Later on in 2012, moving into 2013, the Lord opened the door for Chris and I. We were called to a ministry up in Indianapolis to work in the inner city there at Good News Ministries. It was very clear that the Lord was directing us there, and so we packed up and we moved. My mom was still down in South Carolina going through her treatments. And there were several clues throughout this that should have clued me into how serious my mom's situation was. One of those should have been, uh, soon after we moved, we had the opportunity to go down to Disney World uh, with my mom and and the family to spend a week there. And and it wasn't one of those, you know, my parents didn't pay for it. It was one of those where they had submitted for something and Disney gave them the, the trip for free because of my mom's situation, how serious it was. That should have been a clue to me. I didn't realize it at the time. But um, with the situation, Chris and I had just getting settled in our new job. We had decided to, to go on that trip. My parents had said, we want you at this trip. 
because there was an option. There was the trip to Disney as a family, and then a month or two later, there was my mom's surgery, where they were going to try and get this cancer out of her. And my parents said, between these two, we would rather have you at the Disney trip. So we went, and we got back to Indiana. We got settled in again. We weren't planning on going to the surgery because we had gone to this other trip. We were just starting this new ministry. We didn't have the time to go and to do both. And, and so I was not planning on going to the surgery. I didn't think much of it. Again, at the time, I didn't understand how serious it was. Once we got back, we were telling our co-workers, my boss, I was telling him about the, the trip and, and, and the good time that we had and the upcoming surgery. And he said, you know, man, you might, should probably go to that surgery. If it were my mom, I would be there. And that really hit me. It made me just to sit back and to start thinking, like, maybe, maybe this is serious. Maybe, maybe this is real. And I called my parents, and sure enough, it was a, a, a pretty big deal. It was a big surgery. So I talked to my boss there, Good News, and he approved it, and we ended up going, and, and we got there, and I remember sitting in the waiting room for the surgery, and... Um, before the surgery, meeting with my mom, not sure. This is going to be the last time I'd see her. We waited in the waiting room for eight to ten hours. They had this little screen that would tell you if they were prepping for surgery, if they were in surgery, if they were out in surgery. My mom was in surgery for two hours longer than she was supposed to be. And we thought she might not come out of it. By God's grace, she did. But looking back on that, that's one of those times I look back on in my life and I'm glad that I was there. I would have regretted not being there. Especially as serious as it was, if something would have happened and I wasn't there, it would have plagued me for the rest of my life. You may have a similar story. You may have a a time that you look back on something you regret, that you missed, that you weren't there for, that looking back you wish you had just taken the time. That you wish there would not have been something else to take you away from that. Or maybe like me, looking back, you're, you're glad that you were somewhere because if you would have missed that, it would have eaten you for the rest of your life. As we come to John 20, verses 24 to 31, we find Thomas. It's a well-known passage. In fact, Thomas gets his name, Doubting Thomas, from here. Because Thomas missed something very important. Something that I'm sure, as we will see in the eight days between Jesus' appearance, ate at him. How he must have regretted not being there. And yet we see in the sovereign plan of God that he knew what he was doing all along. As we work our way through this, we'll see Thomas's blind doubt, Thomas's glorious confession, and John's urgent invitation. 
First thing we see here is Thomas's blind doubt. Our verse starts out, now Thomas called the twin one of the twelve. This is not the first time that we are introduced to Thomas. In fact, back in John eleven sixteen, we are introduced to Thomas for the first time. And Thomas comes across as, as bold and yet somewhat pessimistic. In John 11, as Jesus is telling his disciples that they are going to go to Jerusalem, they're going close to Jerusalem, his disciples know that the, the religious leaders want to kill him, they want to arrest him, they know that Rome is interested, and they, and they don't want to go, and they're trying to persuade him. They say, Jesus, let's, let's not go. Don't you know what could happen? And Jesus says, no, we're going. In John eleven sixteen, 16, Thomas boldly but pessimistically says, well, we will go and we will die. <laughs> we'll all go with you, but we'll die too. There's a boldness there, a willingness to follow Jesus. And yet we see, in fact, I think John, in all his irony and foreshadowing, he's probably somewhat setting us up to see you know, a little bit of Thomas's personality. He's just pessimistic. In John 14, 5, we see Thomas again. In John 14, 5, Thomas is actually engaged. He is learning. He speaks up. He asks a question. How, Lord, can we go if we don't know the way? And so there we see that, that Thomas is not one of these disciples. He's not, he's not on the fringes, on the edges, just kind of hanging around. He's in the midst. He is engaged. He is learning. He is committed. So this man who is known as Doubting Thomas is not someone who is just kind of interested in Jesus. He was one of his close disciples. He walked with them. Now in John 20, 24, we see him again. Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. There's a little context needed here. Two weeks ago, we were in John 20, verses 1 to 23, the first part of this chapter. We see Jesus' uh, in John 19, Jesus' crucifixion. John 20, the first 23 verses, Jesus' resurrection. As Mary and the other women go to the tomb, Peter and John go to the tomb. And, and you might remember, John beats Peter to the tomb. He made sure to record that for us for, for all eternity. And they get there and they look in and they see the empty tomb and they come back and they tell the disciples. And then near the end of that, in verse 19, John 20, 19, Jesus appears to those disciples as they are gathered in a locked room still for fear because of uh, Jesus' crucifixion and the Jews. And Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. And it actually records that they see, he shows them the scars in his hands and his side. But what we see here in verse 24 is that Thomas was not there. So of the 11 disciples that are left, Judas having passed off the scene at this time, only 10 of them were gathered in this room. Thomas was gone. He was somewhere else. So Thomas was not there when Jesus came. And he comes back, and the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord! 
Thomas probably heard the testimony of the women earlier that day. He may have talked to John and to Peter and heard their testimony. Now no longer is it just the testimony of two disciples who had gone off from the rest. Now no longer is it the, just the testimony of these women. It is the testimony of all ten disciples with the women, all saying, we have seen the Lord. As you think about that, we don't know where Thomas was. We don't know where he went. He could have been out on an important mission, gathering food or, or doing something. It's not that, that Thomas should have been there and he wasn't. It's just one of those things he probably wishes he was there. I mean, think about it. As he leaves this locked room, because of fear of the Jews, he must have left a room that was silent, that was dark, that was depressed. And you can almost picture him as he goes out and he's kind of sneaking his way through town trying to get whatever he needs because he's, you know, he's, he's scared, obviously. He's nervous because of the Jews. And as he comes back, I can almost picture it in my mind. As he's walking back and, and he hears rejoicing. And he's thinking, something must be going on, something here in the neighborhood. And the closer he gets, the rejoicing is louder and louder and louder until he realizes that rejoicing is coming from the room in which the disciples are. He might even have been frustrated at first. Don't they know that we're in danger? Why are they drawing attention to themselves? And he walks into this room that he left that was so dark and depressed and locked and full of fear. And he walks into a room full of rejoicing. We have seen the Lord. God, that must have eaten at him. In fact, we see it in his response. He said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. He demands not only to see but to touch. And I think we're, we're quick to judge Thomas, but in essence, Thomas does not demand more than the other disciples have received. John 20.20 20 tells us that Jesus showed them his side and his hands. They have seen the wounds. Thomas is merely saying, I want to see the wounds. I want to see and to touch like you. And yet it is still surprising, Thomas's doubt. It is such a, a strong, belligerent doubt. I will not believe unless my demands are met. It's an attitude that is surprising, especially for someone who has walked with Jesus. Again, Thomas is not some fringe disciple. He's one of the twelve called. He was there for the feeding of over 5,000 he was there as Jesus turned water into wine. He was there when Jesus was walking on the water. He was there as Lazarus walked out of the tomb. 
He was there at the Sermon on the Mount. He heard all of Jesus' sermons. In fact, he was privately taught and tutored by Jesus himself. And not only has he seen these things, not only has he heard these things, but these other ten disciples who have had those same experiences and heard those same lessons with him, all ten of them, and the women who are there as well, are testifying, we have seen him, and still he chooses not to believe. He's got ten, over ten eyewitnesses who he knows and who he trusts, who know Jesus. And yet, so belligerently, so defiantly, he says, unless these demands are met, I will not believe. He's not even open to be convinced, I will not believe. We've heard the phrase before, blind faith. What Thomas has is not blind faith, but blind doubt. Thomas clings to his doubt beyond all evidence. He has seen Jesus do amazing things, even raising someone from the dead. He has heard all of Jesus' teaching. He has seen prophecy fulfilled all throughout Jesus' life. Prophecy that, that he has heard from a young boy. And now he hears the testimony of this room full of people and still he chooses to doubt. It's really a contrast to John because we saw John, did we not, last week in John 28 as John runs to the tomb and he bends down and he looks in and he sees an empty tomb. And John doesn't even fully understand what has happened or what it means, but it says that he believed. He may not understand, but he saw the evidence and he believed. You see, faith is not foolish or gullible. Faith is fair. Faith looks at the evidence and comes to a reasoned conclusion. Is that not what we just saw this morning in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2? In 12, 1 to 2, as we read those passages. There is evidence here that should lead Thomas to believe, but he chooses to doubt. Thomas's blind doubt. Secondly, Thomas's glorious confession. And after eight days, His disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Pause there and think about that. After eight days. Eight days of defiant doubt. How miserable must that week have been for Thomas? As everyone else in that room is rejoicing. Everyone else is filled with hope. Everyone else is trying to convince him. Thomas, hear us. Thomas, believe. And yet Thomas clings to his doubt for eight days. In the midst of such joy and excitement, Thomas 
defiantly doubts. They're gathered again. Thomas is with them. And Jesus came. Those are two beautiful words. Jesus came. We don't know why Jesus waited eight days to come. We don't know why Thomas was left in his doubt and frustration for eight days. But Jesus came. How refreshing, releasing, freeing that must have been for Thomas. The doors being shut, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Even in Thomas's defiant doubt, Jesus comes not to condemn or to scold Thomas. He comes in peace. Peace to you. We talked about that two weeks ago. That's the same greeting that he uses in John 20, verses 19 and 21, the first time that he appears post-resurrection to his disciples. And it points back to John 14, 27, when Jesus promises his disciples, my peace I give to you. This is Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who at his birth the angels proclaimed, Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving. Believing. I can just picture this scene as Thomas is sitting there with the other disciples and Jesus is there. His mouth drops open. Peace to you. And then as Jesus looks at Thomas, I don't think that it's a look of disappointment in Jesus' eyes. I don't think it's a look of frustration in Jesus' eyes. I don't think it's, it's anger. Jesus is not here to condemn Thomas. I think the look in Jesus' eyes is a look of care, a look of love. I mean, even his response, what he says to him here, it's such a gentle invitation in the midst of such defiance. Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. It's an invitation. See and belief. Put down your doubt that you cling to so tightly. Notice as Thomas' response. Thomas, it doesn't tell us if Thomas got up and, and I, I doubt that he did touch Jesus. Even though Jesus invites him to. It goes right unto Thomas' confession. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. 
What an awesome confession. In fact, we've seen all throughout John confessions of Jesus' divinity. He is the Son of God. He is from the Father. Jesus has told this. But all throughout John, we've seen others confess this. Starting back, uh, Wearsby, in his commentary, listed all of these. Starting back in, in 134, John the Baptist confesses Christ's deity. Nathaniel in chapter 1, verses 49, confesses his deity. Jesus in chapter 5, verse 25 and 1036. Peter's famous confession in chapter 6, verse 69. In chapter 9, 35, the blind man who is healed confesses the deity of Jesus Christ. Martha in John eleven twenty seven, and John at the end of this passage. All throughout the book of John, people who have interacted with Jesus, who have seen him, have confessed, this is the Christ, the Son of God. And yet here, we have actually, this last testimony is the most complete of all of them. It's the most glorious confession in all of John because my Lord and my God. Thomas not only recognizes that Jesus is from God and therefore divine in some sense, he equates Jesus with God. He does not say this is my Lord who is from God. This is my Lord and my Master who is God. This is a very clear statement. There is no doubt about what Thomas is saying here. You, Jesus, standing before me, you are my master. You are my Lord because you are my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Thomas believes, we see here, it's, it, his faith is genuine. This is a real faith. But Jesus and John go on here to make a further point. Thomas had the privilege of seeing and believing. But what about those who don't? What about those of us who did not have the privilege of living during that time? We don't have the privilege of seeing Jesus. Because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You don't need to see to believe. In fact, faith that is based in sight is in danger of changing as your perspective changes. We're a lot more like children than we think we are. Children, they, they, they see you, and you jump behind a wall and they just they think you're gone. Where did he go? Their, as their perspective changes, their whole world changes. Are we not the same way? If our faith were based on sight, then when we don't see Jesus, we'd be tempted to not believe. But faith that is convinced by truth changes your perspective. In fact, Peter goes on. In 2 Peter 1.19, he makes a statement. In fact, turn there with me, if you will. 2 Peter 1.19. This is a phenomenal verse. 
Backing up to verse 16, he says this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from, from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's looking back to the transfiguration as he was standing there and he heard this voice and he saw Jesus in his glory. Look what he says in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation. The ESV, I believe, says more, sure, what Thomas says there in 2 Peter, or what Peter says there in 2 Peter 1.19 is this. I was on the mountain of transfiguration. I saw Jesus in his glory. I heard the Father speak from heaven. And yet what you hold here in your hands, this is a more sure testimony than even what I saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. The word of God is a more sure testimony of even what Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Think about that. Peter ranks Scripture over experience, even the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. In the Word of God, we have a more sure testimony. In fact, Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? By the Word of God. Just as we saw last week, or two weeks ago, as Mary tries to cling to Jesus and Jesus rebukes her, Mary did not need to cling to Jesus physically to be secure. Thomas did not need to see Jesus physically to believe, and neither do you. You have a more sure testimony in your laps in the Word of God. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There is a settled security to faith that hears the truth and believes and does not need to see to believe. Here we see Thomas's blind doubt. We see Thomas's glorious confession. And finally we see John's urgent invitation. You see, Thomas's doubt and then Thomas's glorious confession of the deity of Jesus Christ leads beautifully into John's invitation. This is really kind of the, the, the climax of the book. We've seen the, the, the death of Jesus Christ. We've seen the resurrection. All, all these chapters are, are kind of the climax. But this is it, where, where John then comes in and gives an invitation. This is what all this means. Look what he says. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. John, the book of John, is not an exhaustive account of Jesus' ministry. It's a purposeful account. There's a purpose to what John has shared here. 
Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that for this purpose. John here is telling us, this is why I've taken the time to sit down and to write this account. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These are written for this purpose, that you may know the truth, that you may believe the truth, and that you may find life more abundant, life everlasting. This is the truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the one longed for from Genesis 3.15. He is the one to which the prophets looked in longing He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of all prophecy. All God's promises find their yes and amen in him. He is the Son of God. And he came and was born of a woman, took on flesh, suffered and died for your sin and rose again victorious that you may have a life. There's a young man that I've had the opportunity to do a little bit of counseling with. And as I've been talking to him, I've he shared with me some of his struggles. He shared with me some of the struggles of, of those close to him. And one of the things I've told him, obviously we don't want to make mistakes, but when you make a mistake, learn from that mistake. Grow from it. And as we look at the uh, situation he's in and those around him who've made mistakes, I think don't, don't just learn from your mistakes. Learn from others' mistakes that, so that you don't have to make those mistakes. And as we come to this passage this morning, I would say to you, learn from Thomas's mistake. Don't make that mistake. Don't be blind in your doubt. Follow John's example. See the empty tomb and believe in the risen Savior, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. You don't need to cling to Jesus physically to have hope and security like Mary. You don't need to see and to touch to believe like Thomas. Rather like John, behold the evidence that John has laid out in front of you. Hear the testimony of all of Scripture. Know the facts. Believe the truth and find life eternal in Jesus Christ. So we respond this morning. There's three ways to respond, and really there's three ways to respond for three different groups of people that might be here this morning. The first is to believe, and that is if you are here this morning, and maybe you've never believed. Maybe you're here and you realize, you know, I, I, I know about Jesus, but I, my whole life I've been thinking that I had to, I had to be good I had to earn my salvation. I had to obey. And then I could be saved. 
But Thomas's testimony and John's testimony is no. The testimony of Scripture proclaims that salvation is not in your works. You are a sinner. And your sin condemns you. And your good works cannot save you. The only way that you could be saved is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for you. And so like Thomas, I would call you this morning to confess. My Lord and my God. Follow John's example. See the empty tomb. Hear the testimony of the disciples. And believe in Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer. But you are, find yourself in a season where you are just plagued by doubts. I would call you this morning to be encouraged. It's one thing to face doubt. It's another to, to choose doubt and to cling to that doubt like Thomas against all evidence. Look here in the book of John. See the testimony of Scripture and find comfort for your troubled heart. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died for you. And he gives you grace, new mercies every morning. He is pleading for you before the Father. In your doubt this morning, find hope. Go and be encouraged. Finally, maybe this morning you, you are a believer and maybe you are firm in your faith. Then a passage like this, that doesn't mean you just write it off. A passage like this should lead you to rejoice. As you look at the empty tomb, as you look at Thomas's testimony and John's purpose, it should lead your heart to proclaim, Amen! Jesus is the Son of God. He is my Lord and my God. And I have life in his name. I call you this morning to re respond. Either respond in faith, Respond finding hope and encouragement or respond rejoicing.